Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on November 2nd, 2014. Today's message is titled, Adultery, Lust, and Separation from God by Pastor Isaac Whiting and is based on scripture, Exodus chapter 20, verses 14, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. Father, thank you so much for this word that is able to change us and open our eyes to what reality is like and give us life. Thank you for this word that is able to set us free. God, we pray that we would have ears to hear your word today, all of us. God, help us to hear what you are saying to each one of us. And help us to go and put it into practice, to follow after you immediately with all of our strength, all of our energy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are up to the seventh commandment today. The seventh commandment is a great one. Do not commit adultery. And so naturally, since we're talking about adultery today, we will be starting the sermon with a brief discussion of gravity and nuclear fusion. All right, so here's what I want to say about gravity and nuclear fusion. What is up with gravity and nuclear fusion? Aren't they really weird? It's, these are two of the weirdest things that exist, and they are proven facts. Um, we have tons of evidence that these are reality. Oh, we've got up here a picture of the sun, right? A picture of the sun. So first, let's consider gravity. Now, gravity is part of our culture at this point. And any child will tell you, duh, gravity, of course, it's obvious. But really, we have all learned that gravity is a reality. We have all learned that by being taught from other people around us. We kind of suck it in from the culture around us. When Sir Isaac Newton first formulated his theory of gravity, most of his contemporaries, the smartest people of the day, thought he was out of his mind. They made fun of him. They thought he was bringing back magic into the equation. And here's why. Think about gravity for a minute. You learned about it in school, but in school we don't take a lot of time uh, to ponder the meaning of things. If there is no God, then gravity doesn't mean anything. Actually, nothing has any meaning. But if God is real, and he is, then it has a very deep and important meaning. Gravity is a force which acts over empty space. It's a force that acts through nothing. It's not mediated by any kind of physical uh, or or wave or particle that we know of. It acts over huge distances. In fact, maybe you know, halfway across the universe, gravity is still in effect. And it is a force by which every two particles in the universe have some attraction toward each other. Every physical thing that exists is drawn to every other physical thing that exists. This is why they thought it was like magic when Newton suggested that the earth and the sun were simply pulling on each other across empty space, across nothing. His contemporaries thought he was crazy. Now that is a very interesting uh, and remarkable fact about the universe, that every particle is attracted to every other particle, even over millions of light years. 
millions of light years. Now what about nuclear fusion? I would say this one is arguably even weirder, right? And you know, I'm, I don't claim to be an expert or some kind of scientist. I just find this stuff fascinating. So what is nuclear fusion? So nuclear fusion is this, this idea that if you take these extremely small particles, all right, so smaller, much smaller than even an atom, which once was thought to be the smallest physical particle, the, the particles that are at the very center of an atom, neutrons and protons, if you take those particles and you squish them together, and by squish them together, meaning you push them together with a force that is beyond our imagination to conceive, the force that happens in the center of stars, the force that humans have only replicated in uh, nuclear bombs, if you push them together with that much force, they will, instead of resisting each other like they do normally, they will stick together. And when they get close enough, they fuse and become something entirely new. Particles that really are just an invisible gas or the things that make up water can be fused together to make things like metal. It's kind of unbelievable. And when it happens, an unbelievable amount of energy is released. Actually, the energy that fuels the entire universe, physically speaking. The energy of the stars is released. So we can see that built right into the physical universe are these incredible forces of attraction. Every particle is attracted and drawn to every other particle, the force of gravity. And at very close distances, if we can overcome the resistance between two particles and get them really close together, incredible energy is released, incredible power. God has made the whole universe in such a way that all of it speaks about him and about what is really true, trying to keep us from going down the path that we normally go down, which is only our made-up imaginations about what the world is like. When we move up from, uh, from the level of physics into the level of biology, we see similar forces at work. In the plant and animal kingdoms, there are also forces that draw especially similar plants and animals together. These are forces uh, such as the need for food or the need for light, drawing things to the same area, and especially the need for reproduction. The need for reproduction in the plant and animal kingdoms draw plants and animals together. When otherwise, without those forces, they might have just been separated and gone off in their different ways to die alone. Now, as we move up to the highest form of life that we are commonly familiar with, the human being, we see that these forces are still in effect. All of the forces of the lower orders of nature are still in effect, and yet even greater and more complicated forces are in effect. Forces like emotions, relationship, what we call love, that draws people together in addition to all these other forces that we find in the rest of the biological world and in the physical world. All through the creation are forces that draw things and people together. Now, when we come to human beings, we see that human life, if we have eyes to see and have not been completely fooled by what's around us, we see that human life is really about love. 
Human life is about love, and this is an inescapable fact. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in God at all. Human life is still about love. Everything that we do is motivated by who or what we love. We seek meaning in everything in our lives, in every act that we take part in, and meaning has to do with the purpose for which we do an action, and the purpose always has to do with who or what we love. Now, if human life is about love, and it is, we can see it's obviously true, and also the Bible says that it's true, then the most important thing about you is who or what you love, and in what degree you love those things, the order of the things that you love. This is the most important fact about you. And we see that Jesus says this same thing when we come to the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, doesn't he? He says, what is the greatest commandment in the whole Bible? If you were going to sum it all up, how do you sum it up? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. This is the most important thing about you. It is critical for your life now and your life in the future that you love nothing more than God and that because you love God, you love other people as much as you love yourself. This is what everything that God has created is aimed toward, creating people, human beings with a free will that will choose to love God and others above everything else. So, we reach the seventh commandment. And we said before that the Ten Commandments, they're not a bunch of arbitrary rules that God just made up that you have to follow in order for God to be happy with you. No, 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 no. Jesus came and he died on the cross and he opened a new way of life to us. We can enter into that life because of what he's done. It's available now. The Ten Commandments are show us the pathway of that life. What does that life look like? How do we walk in this new life? The Ten Commandments are the way. They have some form of order to them, and so the earlier commandments are actually more important than the later commandments. So as we come down to the seventh commandment, we are at maybe the seventh most important thing you need to know about life if you want to follow Jesus and have a whole soul and enter into eternal life. And this commandment has to do uh, of course, with our sexuality. As human beings, as biological people with bodies, we have sexuality. And this force was given to us by God in order to draw us together, in order to lead us to the higher forms of love. But because God has given us such incredible power as human beings, free agents free moral agents, it is also very dangerous. We can use it the wrong way, and it can destroy us. So you could kind of take this commandment, as well as the others, as a little tip from God on how not to destroy yourself. So what would I like to do this morning? What I'd like to do with the seventh commandment is this. I think that in our culture especially, it is very difficult for people to follow this commandment in its fullness. Uh, inside the church, we do a little bit better 
than outside the church. The statistics do actually back that up. Uh, Christians do a little bit better at not committing adultery, not getting divorced, than non-Christians, but not a whole lot better. And I think it's because it's very difficult in our culture to see why adultery would be wrong. And it's even more difficult in our culture to see why lust, intentional lust, which is where adultery really comes from, as we've heard Jesus say, it's even more difficult to see why that is wrong. It feels to most people like an arbitrary rule created by God to make people not have fun or not enjoy themselves. So what I'd like to do this morning is try to show why it is that the Bible, Jesus, God himself, are so against adultery and intentional lust. Why is it that they are so bad? What exactly do they do to you and to the world? First, let's define our terms, just to make sure we're all on the same page. If you want, if you're bored and you need something to do, flip your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. We will read this one verse again. We'll talk about exactly what adultery is, again, just to make sure we're on the same page. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 is very short. Do not, or you shall not, commit Adultery. Now, adultery has two senses to the term. In its narrow sense, of course, what adultery means is a married person having sex with someone they are not married to. That is the narrow sense of the term adultery. But it also has a broader sense, and most people would say that that is the sense that is intended here in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, the broader sense meaning no sexual activity of any kind outside of marriage between one man and one woman. It didn't used to have to be formulated that way, but now it does to make clear what it means. No sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That is what adultery means and what is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments, as we've seen, are not just about following the letter of the law. They were always intended to direct us toward a fuller understanding of uh, how this part of our lives, our sexuality in this case, can mess us up or trip us up or lead us the wrong way. And so Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, as he does for a number of the commandments, explains exactly what this commandment means in its fullness. And this is what Jesus says. I'm going to read for you from uh, the English Standard Version, because the translation of what Jesus says is actually a little bit tricky. And Jesus, or the English Standard Version, gets Jesus' statement just right in their translation. So this is Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'll just read it again. It's fantastic. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's define our terms here again. Here we have the term lust. And lust, again, has a narrow sense and a broad sense. In its narrow sense, what lust means is strong sexual desire for another person. Strong sexual desire for another person. In its broad sense, lust can actually mean excessive desire for anything. Not only sexual desire, but any kind of desire that is excessive for anything, whether it's another person or something such as power, where we would say the lust for power or the lust for money. When a desire for something kind of takes over your mind and your being and who you are and you begin to live for it. It's actually, of course, a form of idolatry, as we learn in Colossians chapter 1. Now, Jesus here prohibits something very specific, and I want to get right what he prohibits, what he says is adultery in the heart. Because many Bibles translate this passage as simply looking at someone and lusting after them. Now, of course, Jesus says a man lusting after a woman. Let's make clear that he is very inclusive here. It also includes a woman lusting after a man or a man lusting after a man or woman after woman. All of these are included in this, uh, in this statement that Jesus makes. But he doesn't just prohibit looking and being attracted to someone sexually. Think about it for a minute. If that's what he prohibited it would actually not be possible, especially for young people, to follow that command. Especially when you're young, especially for young men, I think, this just happens before they even think or can respond in any way. What Jesus prohibits is looking at someone with lustful intent. This is very like anger. We talked about last week anger, which is what he says just in the verses preceding this in Matthew chapter 5. Anger itself is not a sin. Not simply someone does something to you and you feel anger. That's not a sin. But what you do with it immediately afterwards is usually a sin. When you receive anger into yourself, when you want it and you take it in and you accept it and cultivate it, that is sin. That is wrong. And the same is true here for lust. Simply being attracted to another person is not a sin, but what you do with it afterwards. If you receive that and cultivate it and think about it and focus yourself on it and do it intentionally, then it is wrong and will lead you to death. Jesus' statements right after this in Matthew chapter 5 are some of the strongest statements in the Bible about what will lead you to hell, what will lead you to eternal destruction. So Jesus in this chapter prohibits lust, which he calls adultery in the heart. They are sort of the same thing. Or a heart that is intentionally lusting after another person is a heart that would commit adultery in the right circumstances. This is what Jesus is saying. So now I'm going to ask you to think really hard and stick with me. I'm going to give you two main reasons that the Bible says, that Jesus and God say, that adultery and lust, intentional lust, are wrong. I'm going to give you two main reasons. The first one is a lot easier to understand. 
The second one is a little bit more difficult, but far more important. So two categories. First of all, ruined relationship. Intentional lust and adultery ruin relationship at every level. The reason that our society is in fact no longer able to find a reason why these things are wrong is that our society is almost entirely focused on what is visible and physical, on the biological. If we were merely animals, then there really wouldn't be anything wrong with adultery and lust. But we are not merely animals. We exist in very deep interpersonal relationships that are complicated beyond imagination. And when adultery occurs, of course, or when there's intentional lust, those relationships are ruined. We can see this most clearly, of course, in the case of actual adultery. If there are people who are married, or even if they're not married and simply in a long-term relationship, and someone goes and commits adultery with someone outside, someone else, one of those members goes and commits adultery, that destroys and is very divisive and hurtful in the relationship always. Even when people say or try to convince themselves that it's no big deal, it still destroys their relationships and it destroys the health of their soul. But intentional lust is so pervasive in our society and goes far beyond simply destroying a marriage relationship. It destroys and breaks relationships of the whole family. It destroys and breaks relationship between friends, between people, just who meet each other and know each other. It changes the nature of a relationship. Because when you are lusting after another person, you are no longer viewing them as what God really created them to be. God made each of us. He made us in his own image as beings who have a spirit, who are made to enter into eternal life, a life of love with him. And when you view someone else through the eyes of intentional lust, it makes them only a body, simply an animal, nothing else. And this absolutely destroys any basis for real relationship between human beings. It also has created in our society, in very subtle ways, uh, uh, quite a stark division. I wonder how many of you are sitting here thinking right now, well, I don't have a big problem with that. I know some of you are not thinking that, but I wonder how many are. But let me ask you this, just to see how far this has creeped into your life. Do you treat attractive people better than unattractive people? Not asking you to answer. But think about it and try to think about it deeply. If you're in a group, do you speak to the one most often who is the prettiest or the most handsome? Do you, in subtle ways, maybe without even thinking about it, give, uh, show favoritism in the way that you act toward people who are good looking? This is a fact of our world and destroys our world. It again destroys relationship and is profoundly evil. What it does both to those who are beautiful and to those who are unattractive 
It puts both in the wrong position. So ruined relationship, that's the first reason that I give this morning from Scripture why God thinks intentional lust and adultery are really so bad. These need to be removed from our lives completely if we're to follow Jesus and truly know him. But second, and this is the more important reason and a little bit more difficult to grasp, intentional lust and adultery train your soul toward death. They train your soul and your spirit toward death. I'm going to read for you a section from Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. We went through this this morning in the youth group Sunday school, and on average they gave about a, a 7 or an 8 out of 10 on how well they understood what this passage is saying. So let's see how you do in comparison to them, although I'm not going to make you show me by your hands or anything like that. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption or destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What does this passage mean? It means that the one who puts their energy, the one who puts their time, their energy, their talents, whatever resources God has given them into the things of the flesh will harvest or reap destruction. Whereas the one who puts their time, energy, talents, whatever resources God has given them into the spirit will reap, harvest, receive eternal life. And that God cannot be tricked in this. God cannot be tricked in this. Even if you say you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you say, yes, I'm forgiven because of what Jesus did for me. If you put all of the energy of your life into what is visible, the things of this world, the flesh, you will reap destruction. This is what Paul says many places, including Galatians chapter 6. Basically, it works like this. You have a body, but you also have a spirit. You are a very unique and incredible kind of creation, both spirit and flesh united in one. And the thing about your spirit is that your spirit will always attach to things. It will love It is the part of you that chooses, that wants. It is what the Bible refers to as your heart. The part of you that loves things or people or God. And that spirit will become like whatever it loves. It will become like whatever it loves. This is the teaching of the Bible. Just like um, in marriage, Genesis chapter 2 says that when the two are married, they become one. Because as they love each other, their spirits become more and more like each other until eventually even their flesh, their bodies, share similarities. Or in Isaiah, we're shown by by the prophet Isaiah that those who worship idols, those who love idols and bow down to them, will what? Become like them. 
And this is also true all throughout the New Testament. The one who loves God and who truly loves Jesus will become like him steadily more and more. So here is the real strongest reason that intentional lust and adultery are so bad for you. And this is a reason that is impossible to see if you believe you are only a physical body, a biological animal, is that your spirit will be deeply, profoundly united with the flesh through intentional lust and adultery. And that will train it toward death. Do you see? This is an act that you, many people commit, and as they do it, their souls love only what is physical. What is physical will all eventually die and perish, not just eventually, but very soon. And when it dies, the soul or spirit that is united to it will die as well. It will not cease to exist, but it will die. It will live in an eternal death. And this is what the Bible refers to as hell, eternal destruction, the soul that is united to the flesh. So I hope you've seen this morning why lust, intentional lust, and adultery are so bad. They are terrible for you and for everyone else around you. They must be gotten rid of. And I believe this is the biggest step toward actually getting rid of them, is to see and truly believe that they are evil and want to have them out of our lives. Most people who have these things in their lives regularly have these things because they don't really believe they're that bad. They think they're okay and they want to keep them with them. If you actually see and believe that these are evil, if you pray to God and seek him constantly, if you know Jesus Christ, and if you put into effect in your life all of the other Ten Commandments that we've been talking about by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible for you to remove these from your life completely, to live a life that is free in every way from adultery, and thus to live a life that is full of the power of God. Let's pray.